everyone, and welcome to the Forecast Fest. I'm Kate Baldwin, here with my colleagues, John Avalon. Hola, happy 2020. And Harry Anton. Shalom and happy new year. Your next chapter, your next career can be a jingles writer. Uh, you know, I, my cousin Dara was a jingles singer and quite good at it. Wait, related do you have a cousin to, Neil and? Yeah. Cousin, cu- cousin, related to the Neil. Neil. The s- yes, her, his, oh. his Not young people. His daughter. <laughs> and, and I will point out they actually had a top 20 hit in the country back in 1980. Should have never let you go. We will be fact-checking that, friends. Do not worry. <laughs> we hope everyone enjoyed the holidays. We're back to a regular schedule, and it's a good thing because a lot has happened. On Tuesday, Iran fired more than a dozen ballistic missiles at two Iraqi military bases housing U.S. troops. It was in response to the United States killing the high-ranking Iranian commander Qasem Soleimani at the direction of President Trump in a drone strike in Iraq. This not only has clear immediate and long-term implications for the country and the world, but it also has somewhat reshaped the conversation in the 2020 election. And we're going to get into that. But first, we are less than one month away from the Iowa caucuses. Yay! Harry and John are oh too excited. Little too excited for it. I'm dancing. Thank goodness it's a podcast Fossey, and you can't Fossey. see his dance. Yeah. Next Tuesday in Iowa, CNN will host the seventh debate of the Democratic primary season, and we're going to dive into why this debate might be the most important one yet. And in measuring engaging who is up and who is down and who is leading when it comes to the primary, a look at two key metrics that are not polling. Harry, I don't even know why we're talking about this. <laughs> Fundraising and endorsements. Because it's interesting. Because we're, we're talking about it because I just have such a cute put and no one what? can turn me down. No. I thought that's what it Objectively, was. Objectively, no. Oh, my, my mommy says that she likes the way that I look. Uh, um, uh, <laughs> Let's begin with the forecast or just delete that entire thing. Harry, what do you have? All right. So uh, we're, Crystal is and I do these power rankings and a little sneak preview. Maybe next time we might actually have a forecast. We'll see. That's an actual. Um, You're so good at keeping secrets I, and all. You know what? I can't keep secrets. It's called a tease. It's called a tease. Yeah. Thank you, John. Look, uh, Crystal is and I do these power rankings and this week. We have shrunk it down to five. This is a big deal. This We've been a, suffering through ten, ten of these for years. Suffering? Suffering. Wow. Well, someone has very little patience. Uh, in any event, here are those five. We haven't gotten to caucuses yet. <laughs> uh, at number five is the uh, senior senator from the great state of Minnesota, Amy Klobuchar. Number four is the senior senator from the great state of Massachusetts, Elizabeth Warren. Number three is the former mayor of South Bend, Indiana, Pete Buttigieg. Number two is the junior senator from the great state of Vermont, Bernard Sanders. And number one, retaining his rank for, I don't know, the 12 trillionth time in a row, the former vice president of the United States, Joseph Robinette Biden Jr. I do love the way you say Robinette. I got to say that was educational. For you me. know what? I try my best. I always try to get the correct um, emphasis on the correct syllable. Amy Klobuchar should be very happy about this yep. latest ranking. I mean, look, here's the deal. These five at this point to me are really the only five who have a, you know, beyond a two, maybe three percent chance of winning the nomination. Klobuchar is right at the bottom of that. I think there's a real separation between four and five on this list. And it all comes down to the fact that she's running fifth in the limited polling that we have out of the great state of Iowa for those caucuses. And so that gets her in the fifth spot. But in reality, one through four, if we were actually doing this and able to shrink it down, it'd be a one through four. Yeah, but she still, she rivered her way into the consideration set, top five. She's on the debate stage, Midwestern senator. Great debate performance last time. Got a little bump out of it. So good for Amy Klobuchar. 
Good for Amy Klobuchar. Good for Amy Klobuchar. Let's focus in on Iowa. There's been little polling out of there in the last month, but we did get a CBS poll over the weekend, and it shows a three-way tie in the state with Bernie Sanders, Joe Biden, and Pete Buttigieg at 23 percent, and then Elizabeth Warren trailing them at 16 percent, and Amy Klobuchar behind that. As I mentioned, next Tuesday, CNN will be hosting the first debate of 2020, just two weeks before the Iowa caucuses, and as of Wednesday, the day we are recording this delightful, wonderful, you can't miss it podcast. Only five (laughs) candidates, you know me, (laughs) only five candidates have made the cut. You've got Biden, Sanders, Buttigieg, Warren, Klobuchar. Is that five? Good. Done. Done. This will, will make it the smallest debate stage yet. The last debate had seven candidates. So Steyer if it's going to, you know, the Yang gang, Gonzo. not going to be happy. So if the debate stage is very clearly going to look different, and it also is going to have a little bit of different urgency, I would argue, because we are now in the closing moments before the caucuses. What is the impact of that? What is a, you know, like an Iowa-focused debate going to look like? Well, I mean, look, they're going to, there's going to be typically these debates have a, are weighted a little more towards Iowa issues. Um, they're trying to appeal to folks, although I will say there's a lot of evidence, especially last cycle, that Iowa voters are not swayed by the traditional like pandering to ethanol that was always considered sacrosanct. Right. Ted Cruz opposed it and ended up uh, w- winning the caucus anyway. So um, it will be a little bit more Midwest focused, a little more job focused, a little more Iowa issue focused. But it's a closing argument or close to it before the before the, the caucus. And yeah. it, look, it is really, really isolates for folks what the consideration set is. And it leaves people like Cory Booker, Andrew Yang kind of in the dark. Mike Bloomberg doesn't need to worry about any of this. But but it, 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 it's going to hurt those candidacies. I mean, look, this, we have five people on the debate stage. Those are the five who are in the power rankings. Fact is, when you go off the debate stage, you're pretty much forgotten by the voters or insofar you aren't taken as much as a serious candidate. Uh, and that's why these are the top five. And I think that we're going to see a lot of fireworks because, as you pointed out, This is really the last chance that these candidates will be able to make their case in front of potential caucus goers when they're on the same stage as the their their compadres. And I've done Iowa debate prep on on the other side of, mm-hmm. of, of the, the stage. And look, you know, the the, the 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 closer you get, the more focused you become on these local issues. Um, and, and, and that's really what to watch. for. So How wait, it's folks? not going to be a whole other debate. On the <laughs> differences between healthcare, uh, I would hope not, and I think oh, the, the candidates. I, would I had to eat my. I, should, I really had to eat my words after the last debate when I'm like, "There's no way they're going to do an no entire way. other debate about healthcare." But you know what? Look, but it, despite that, you can't ignore impeachment. You can't ignore Iran. There are certain issues that anyone who wants to be commander in chief is going to have to deal with. In addition to, I think the hyper local, hyper middle class Midwest focus of the upcoming. Debate. Uh, look, I, I mean, look. To me, the fact is, is we're already seeing people telegraphing what's going to happen. We saw Bernie Sanders go after Joe Biden on Anderson Cooper's program over and over again. We see that Elizabeth Warren is going to try and roll back the bankruptcy bill back from 2005, Mm -hmm. which obviously there was a major debate at the time between her and Joe Biden. Uh, So, look, I think that there's going to be fireworks. I think the fact that Joe Biden has stayed on top in the national polling and even in Iowa, supposedly he was dead. I recall this two months ago, Joe Biden falling to the floor. 
Just like the the um, my foot fell through my shower, and that's why it got cracked, and that's why it's being fixed up right now. <laughs> Look, the, oh he God. is he is staying on top in the Iowa polls. I do expect that if the last debate was folks going after Pete Buttigieg, that in this debate there are going to be many more folks going after Joe Biden. Why you not just, about going after? I'm, I'm avoiding it. No, I'm not no, talking about go, a foot going through a shower. No, it's not that so much as that. Like I finally realized that. You know, it, what Harry actually is is some through-the-looking-glass cast-off of Seinfeld. That's really <laughs> just – he's like, like a Seinfeld spin-off. Is he Seinfeld spin-off. or is he Kramer? Well, I mean, no, I, don't mean Seinfeld, I mean the show. Oh, the show. The, the, the wallet, for those of you who can't see at home, is all George Costanza. Is that Costanza. the Costanza wallet? Oh, it's a yeah. fully Costanza wallet. Yeah. Um, but uh, look, yeah, we've talked about Teflon Joe. We've also – trademark the Biden boomerang. But in all seriousness, I think Biden is going to have everybody firing at him because this is their chance to kind of stop. Why him. not Sanders? Because I think he's everyone... like leading in New Hampshire and in, 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 he's tied for number one in Iowa. And money, he is raking it in yeah. over and over. I, because I think everyone is making a dangerous assumption that Sanders, there's just no way the Democratic Party is ultimately going to nominate Bernie Sanders. That's risky. Um, but I think that's a risky assumption. Um, but but I, I agree with you. But I'm just saying because of that, they're all trying to knock Biden down because they're doing some weird ca- uh, caucus math in their head. I, I will say that there is a shot, and this has been spoken about among the elites on Twitter, oh, um, well, well. that this could turn into an 04 Dem primary uh, or lead up to those caucuses where you had Gephardt and you had Dean who are kind of the more moderate and the more liberal options going after each other, eating themselves alive, and then John Edwards and John Kerry came up the center who, of that Can we lane. just extend the metaphor? Who is who in this particular yeah, who is, uh, so Who's John how, Edwards? So John Edwards. Is Pete Buttigieg? Warren and um, Buttigieg are the Edwards and Kerry in this, while the Dean is the Sanders and the Gephardt would be the Biden. It doesn't work perfectly no, it for any number all, of actually. ways. Okay, but doesn't this, if, if you're looking at kind of what, the last debate shows about this debate is we're like looking into this. So Buttigieg was a target last time. Coming out of Iowa, he's doing really well. So obviously we all disagree a little bit on who will be the target then this time. But if doesn't this also prove that being a target on the debate stage really only helps your status, assuming you believe debates have an impact in this cycle? <laughs> I, sorry. I think CNN, you, please watch. I, <laughs> Wolf and Abby are going to be great. Look, I they Wolf are, and Abby are going to be great. But Glad Abby's going to be on there. Right. Uh, he, uh, the thing I'll point out is I think you might have the relationship reverse. You are a target because you're already doing well. And so if you were targeted like Pete was last time, you were you were targeted because you're doing well. You're going to be targeted if you're Joe because you're doing well. But so l- let me let me throw out one other, you know, nerd parallel while we're doing that quickly. So debates don't matter. They're just a reflection of what's playing on the campaign. Well, it, look, they typically do, but this cycle it, it is it, Biden has been just buoyed no matter what. Yeah. The short-term hit. What strikes me is that like the Republican primaries in 2012, there seems to be this conventional wisdom front runner. The base isn't terribly excited. He seems like the most electable uh, candidate. This is a a Romney-Biden parallel. But the party base keeps pushing up alternatives. In the case of 2012, it was really weird. It was Herman Cain. It was everybody not named John Huntsman, basically. And in this case, you know, you've seen the, the Warren cycle. You've seen the Buttigieg cycle. Um, but but Biden just has remained buoyantly on top. So there's another thing that came out in the CBS poll I wanted to ask you guys about. None of the candidates have convinced a majority of primary voters in Iowa that they can defeat Donald Trump. On the question, mm-hmm. it was Biden— 
is at 38 percent. Sanders, 29. Warren, 24. Buttigieg, 21. Considering the Democrats have consistently said that is what they care most about in the candidate that they pick, what, I am not clear what that means. I think it means two things. Number one, you know, on the question, would you probably defeat Trump? None of the voters, the, no, a majority isn't convinced on any of them, which perhaps indicates that there may be more movement in those final few days as they try and figure out who could actually beat Donald Trump. Two is, look, Biden is still up in that metric at 38 to Sanders yeah, mm-hmm. is 29. So to me indicates, hey, this is why Biden perhaps has been doing so well. I'll also point out that it might have a little bit to do with question wording. Yeah. In our last uh, Iowa poll, um, we asked that, where we asked a similar question, a majority did say they were fair, at least fairly confident that Biden would def- would be Trump. Yeah, that's what I wanted to ask okay. you about this, because it does seem like an outlier. Does this mean um, that, that you know, in this case, 62 percent of voters thought that Donald Trump would beat Joe Biden? No, I just it's more about confidence. I don't think it's that they necessarily they're just not sure is the way that I would sort of frame it. I I don't think that they're convinced that Trump would win. It's more that they're not convinced that Biden would win. Can I ask just one more thing? Because comparing last debate to what we're going to be seeing this debate, something that everyone was talking about the last debate was that Andrew Yang was the only non-white candidate on the stage. Mm -hmm. Now he's not on the stage. Julian Castro's dropped out. Does that mean that after two debates like this, that the race of the candidate isn't as important for Democratic voters and what, what, and what they're factoring? I mean, does it mean anything? I mean, I'm sure— I just think it's an important conversation to be having, and look at the John. debate stage this time. Look, there also are less women on the stage now this time. Yeah, although, you know, you're, you're you know, two women and three men on the stage. What, what fascinates me is that so much of the negative stereotypes around Democrats are about identity politics, but one of the constants that's been unspoken throughout this cycle, despite a very diverse field at the outset, is that— Young voters have been actually supporting the oldest candidates. You know, uh, you know, Pete Buttigieg being a pioneering candidate in terms of the first serious you know, candidate who happens to be gay, not campaigning on the issue at all, much like Barack Obama did in 2008. A lot of the identity politics actually have fallen away in terms of uh, people's who they support. And I think pragmatic decisions seem to be overriding it all. I think that's actually a really interesting uh, aspect of this whole debate. I think John's mm-hmm. right. You know, in a, Mar- well, you. Uh, in a Marist poll that was taken early this year, 83 percent of Democrats said that they would be enthusiastic about voting for a woman. But only 7 percent in an ABC News Washington Post poll said that the woman would be more likely than a man to defeat Trump, while 23 percent thought that um, a man would be more likely to defeat Trump than a woman would be. So I think these are sort of, you know, they would like it. But the fact is there there are some electability concerns and I don't think it's necessarily at the top. That's of a Hillary issue Clinton pie. hangover, though. Could, well. Oh, I, I, yes. I'm not surprising if that is. But the voters think the way that the voters think. Yes. And the elusive definition of what electability means from mm, one voter to the next. That is elusive. All right. When we come back, um, a look at two metrics that don't include polling that may have a huge impact on who pulls ahead in the primary. Plus, we will talk about the unfolding situation in Iran and how it's understandably pushing foreign policy and national security to the forefront of the 2020 race. That's up next. We're back. 
friends. When making election predictions, we often, of course, look to polling. Or why else would we have Harry Enten here? However, (laughs) kidding, love you. Love you, love you. It's just too easy. However, that isn't the only metric to pay attention to. There's also money and endorsements. Fourth quarter fundraising numbers show that Sanders, Bernie Sanders, brought in about $34.5 million in the final months of 2019. And that is a total sum of nearly $100 million since launching his campaign. Joe Biden in fourth quarter fundraising came in at $22.7 million. Not as impressive as Sanders. It's still a lot of money. But he also has 36 endorsements for members of Congress and governors. That's 23 more endorsements than Senator Cory Booker, Biden's closest competitor in the endorsement game. And Duh. Sanders has only six endorsements to date. Digest those numbers. But, Harry, you say that those two metrics— Money and endorsements show that Biden and Sanders are the clear leaders in the primary. Please explain why. Okay, So essentially, you know, what I like to do is go back over time, right, and see what has helped to predict races in the past and what hasn't helped to predict races in the past. And we know that at this point in primary seasons without incumbents running since 1980, the fundraising leader at this particular point has gone on to win the primary 9 of 14 times since 1980. While if you look at the endorsement leader, they have gone on to win the primary 10 of 14 times since 1980. Hmm. So it's pretty clear that these metrics, especially given that we're looking at many multi-candidate fields, tend to be highly correlated with the result. It doesn't mean that they're perfectly correlated. For instance, we know Donald Trump led in neither fundraising nor in endorsements. But given the fact that these seem to be basically confirming what the national polls indicate, I think it's fairly safe to assume at this point that Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders are running one and two in this primary. Yeah. And look, I mean, it, it, there are additional variables. They're interesting ones. I think they're important ones. What's striking to me is, first of all, for a guy who hates capitalism, Bernie Sanders sure does well with fundraising. Um, I mean, Small dollar donations. Yeah, I, I know. But I mean, th- that really does speak to an enthusiasm. Biden had a better quarter than he did previously, but he really has consistently lagged. I think that speaks to an enthusiasm gap. But look at the endorsements. I know conventional wisdom says endorsements don't matter. No, it's not conventional wisdom. It's wisdom. They don't matter. <laughs> what is the what is the distinction you're making here? The conventional conventional and non-conventional. Look, All wisdom. I think right now we have a bit of an over-indexing of the Trump effect, although that certainly has a downstream effect. It does speak to who the people who know the folks best think would make the best president. There it is. There it is right there. I think John hit on it. We oftentimes want to say, OK, the reason endorsements matter is because it's uh, essentially – Oh, a person is going to vote for X person because Y of elected official said that you should vote for X person. That is, oh, I'm going to listen to my elected official. They like this person. Therefore, I am. That's not necessarily what may be going on here. What it may be going on is it's a leading indicator. That is voters who are essentially – look, an elected official is a voter, right? And they fill out a certain demographic profile, a certain ideological profile when other people in the electorate who fit those same demographic and ideological profiles are going to make their decision. They have to go through the same exact sort of ways of thinking as these elected officials. They will come to similar conclusions. Can I try to say that a different way that doesn't (laughs) make my brain stop? Are you saying that – Governors and electeds are not necessarily leaders. They are endorsing the person that they think their electorate is already into. 
that's part of it. But it's also the fact that when the voters hear the same arguments and digest the same arguments from the candidates that the elected officials has, they will vote in similar manners as their elected officials. And, and look, it's not a Tammany Hall kind of one for one. I'm going to bring you my district. But it is a measure of folks who are saying, I do this for a living, i.e. governing, and this person would be a really good president. It is striking that Bernie Sanders has such a loyal fan base. He's done incredibly well in fundraising, and yet he lags so far behind Cory Booker on his his endorsements. And that's because the people who've worked with Bernie Sanders for decades don't necessarily think he'd make a good president. Why, if Pete Buttigieg is the second biggest fundraiser, why isn't he in the runnings here? Well, I mean, in terms of endorsements or in terms in of, terms of you know, power rankings yeah. and so on and so forth. The thing that I would point out is two things. Well, I guess it's two things that I would point out, <laughs> not the thing. Uh, and that is, number one, uh, look, these are fundamentals. There are still wide margins of error with them. We look yeah. at them, you know, in connection with other things that are going on. And clearly in the National Post, Buttigieg is really registering at best in the high single digits. He might be back down to the mid single digits. Uh, the second thing that I'll point out here is when it comes to the fundraising, while it is most certainly the case that Buttigieg and Sanders are one and two at this point, it is also the case that when you sum up all the candidates who are in the race right now, Bernie Sanders actually has a little less than 25 percent of all the money that's been raised in this Democratic primary from individual contributors. It's actually not as large of an advantage as you might think versus someone like Joe Biden actually has about 45 percent of the endorsement so far given in this primary. It's a significantly larger lead. Why aren't they more linked, though? Why do you think that these two things are not more intrinsically linked, meaning fundraising and endorsements? If if Biden is so good at getting endorsements, why isn't he – better at fundraising. I think because there's less grassroots enthusiasm about Joe Biden. I think it's kind of a he's a pragmatic decision, can beat Donald Trump, win over swing voters, whereas Bernie Sanders supporters are incredibly enthusiastic about him. And he's done a low dollar uh, pitch, which has appealed to them. I want to point out three other really quick things. One, Elizabeth Warren took a 20 percent hit in her uh, Q4 totals. That's really interesting. Um, I think it speaks to a lack of... That's why she might be finally doing television interviews. That's exactly interviews right. in general. And, 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 and doing very well at them. But, you know, she had a lot of momentum last quarter uh, that kind of fell, fell away. Um, I also think the fact that Cory Booker, you know, this has been a recurring theme for me. I am continually fascinated that he has not done better. You look at he has 13 endorsements um, and he, he's struggling to stay in the race. But it is one of the mysteries because he, he should be a bigger player uh, than he is. And finally, let's not forget Donald Trump. If you want to do the dollars to donuts of the fundraising totals, he's crushing everybody. Now, he doesn't have any competitors on his side. Yeah. But $46 million, he is developing a war chest that Democrats, you know, dismiss at their peril. And $46 million is the fourth quarter. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, just <laughs> to make sure. I, I, I will just say that I, I tend to think that the general election will not be decided by dollars. This is my own belief. It will be everyone's going to be locked and loaded and ready to go in terms of money in the general. We'll see. Let's let's turn <laughs> Stay to Stay tuned. Exactly. Seriously. Let's uh, let's turn to the story dominating the headlines and a story that is still unfolding, a crisis that is still unfolding as we speak. Last week, President Trump ordered a precision strike to take out one of the top Iranian commanders, Qasem Soleimani, citing an imminent threat that Soleimani was planning against Americans, though the administration has not provided clear evidence of what that threat was. In response, late Tuesday, Iran retaliated firing ballistic missiles at two Iraqi bases housing U.S. forces. While the commander-in-chief is making these decisions in real time and facing both 
support, applause, and a healthy dose of criticism from Washington and beyond, the crisis is understandably already impacting and shifting the conversation among the candidates who want to be the next commander-in-chief. So let's start with where, where the polling stands, Harry. What does the polling, what does polling say um, obviously, all of this is pre-drone strike yeah. about the importance of foreign policy in the primary. I mean, it was it was down low. It was not particularly high. We had a CNN poll that was done uh, back in November that asked about these different issues in foreign policy on the extremely important scale, ranked well below health care, for example. Um, but what it also suggested was that on foreign policy, the candidate who was most trusted, overwhelmingly a clear plurality, was Joe Biden which I think is really interesting, right? Because I think that a lot of those on the left, especially Bernie Sanders, believe that this whole episode is an opportunity to display the two different records that Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden have when it comes to to Southwest Asia or the Middle East. That is, Joe Biden voted for the Iraq war and Bernie Sanders voted against it. And they believe this is an opportunity for them. But if you look at the polling, what it generally finds is, in fact, many more voters on the Democratic side trust Joe Biden when it comes to foreign policy and not Bernie Sanders. Foreign policy is what a president does. It is a large part of what a president does. And domestic elections, particularly places like the Iowa caucus, focus not at all on it. But to the extent you're looking for someone who can plausibly be a commander in chief, foreign policy is going to play a disproportionate role. What's interesting is you do see the more isolationist Democrats who frankly have a lot more foreign policy in common with Donald Trump uh, than than the traditional mainstream of their party um, saying that this is a great opportunity for contrast. We should pull back. Um, You see the Pete Buttigieg is saying, look, I've got military experience, but I think we've been engaged in too many uh, foreign wars. Biden's strength on foreign affairs, though, goes beyond his stint as vice president. Go back in the Wayback Machine with me to summer of 2008. I like the sound effects on that. Thank you. When he was picked by Obama, it was in part because there was a cycle at the time where Russia was doing a cyber incursion against the country of Georgia. Biden flew in. He was sort of an expert. um, And he'd been very involved in foreign affairs during his time in the Senate. That was a big part of why Barack Obama picked him to balance out his lack of experience on foreign affairs. Because he was untested on foreign Exactly. Foreign so so this has actually um, been a core attribute of Joe Biden, even though folks on the left and right would hit him on positions he's taken in the past when it comes to foreign affairs. And you mentioned how, they're, how candidates are using this to draw a contrast. Someone who is definitely using this crisis to draw a contrast is Bernie Sanders. Let, let's play what he told Anderson Cooper just this week. Joe and I are friends, and, and I truly like Joe. But what is imperative is that we defeat Trump, the most dangerous president in modern history. And that means you're going to have to have a huge voter turnout. You're going to have to get working people excited. You're going to have to get young people excited. Joe Biden voted and helped lead the effort for the war in Iraq, the most dangerous foreign policy blunder in the modern history of this country. Sanders goes on to list the other ways that he is in contrast to Joe Biden in that same answer. But that does sound like a candidate that knows that Iowa is less than four weeks away and is really ready to draw a contrast because that is not Bernie Sanders of even a month ago. In what way? The, the way he was drawing a contrast with, with Biden. Oh. He was, he's, was not calling any candidate out by name. Right. Right. I, I think you're right. You know, but again, I brought it up earlier and I really do think that the 04 primary in some ways can be instructive here or at a minimum can sort of tell you that sometimes what you think might happen is not necessarily the thing that will happen. So in that particular primary, you may recall, you know, John Kerry won it and he had voted for the Iraq war. He voted for the Iraq war. The vast majority of Democrats in the Iowa caucus were against the Iraq war. And yet John Kerry won that. Why? He won because of two things. He won because 
the voters who said that the candidate that they wanted to choose had the right experience was the most important quality. Kerry won that overwhelmingly. Can defeat George Bush in 2004. John Kerry won that overwhelmingly. Doesn't that sound a lot to you like how Joe Biden's doing right now? He does best when it comes to experience. He does best when it comes to mm-hmm. beating Donald Trump. And so the mere fact that he might have voted for the Iraq war may not be having the same cause and effect you might expect. Of course not. It's it's also further in the review mirror yes, as opposed to being a, an urgent issue. And, and, and remember, as folks will be hearing exhaustively over the next couple of weeks, the caucus, the way they vote is totally different than a typical election. So there's a negotiation process. There's neighbors trying to convince each other. Um, and, and that may benefit as other candidates, supporters fall out. It may benefit uh, a Joe Biden more than a Bernie Sanders who has a narrow but intense niche audience. But look at the argument he's making. He's saying, look, you're only going to get this uh, beat Donald Trump with real enthusiasm. That's where my supporters clearly outclass Biden's. Um, the, the, the foreign policy argument, he may try to say, you know, that isolationist president can tap into populist uh, sentiment. It's never going to be Bernie Sanders' strong suit. It's because the guy was praising the Castro's, you know, during the Cold War. I do wonder, leaning on your speech writing skills, Go on. how does, <laughs> if Biden is clearly leading on this issue when it comes to foreign policy, where is the line? How does he capitalize on it but not look like he's exploiting a national security crisis that's playing out in real time. Like, how do you do that on a, on a daily basis when you're when you're hitting the trail? I think you make the point that we need to have a responsible commander in chief who can bring people together, uh, who's been there in the room, who can bring stability and continuity and the primacy of national interests over special interests. And Donald Trump may be surrounded by people who keep him from going off the guardrails, but the number one risk to global stability right now is Donald Trump. And he's hurt perceptions of U.S. and the world. It will be this is a topic that will be really interesting to hear how they address it and what how they approach it um, from the debate stage on Tuesday. It's going to be fascinating. And, you know, one thing I just was thinking about right now, I had to look this up to make sure that it was right. Would you know, the idea of attacking Joe Biden on the Iraq war vote would be the same as Gary Hart attacking Walter Mondale for supporting the Vietnam War in the 84 primary. And I don't think that that it was a particularly strong attack line during that primary. So, I mean, you know, it's like to some but people it's so ex- easy. Time is a flat it was, circle, it was, man. It was, it was didn't Gary Hart have other issues? Uh, Gary Hart did have and other issues. Like, turned in, 80, out, in, in 88, but, you know. In 84, he, that would have been a totally yeah. different race. Oh, thank you for ending on oh. that. Monkey business. Nostalgia. Monkey business. And that's a wrap for us today. Thank you so much for listening. Please make sure to subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. While you're there, leave a comment, please. We enjoy them. And you can also find us on Twitter. In the meantime, I'm at Kate Baldwin. I'm at John Avalon. You're writing it down as if you need to read it. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, that's correct. I am at Forecaster Enton on your Twitter dial. And now I am also on it on your Instagram dial as well, though I don't post anything. And his avatar is a creepy poodle. Uh, no, that is what? a Lassa app, so it is my Same childhood thing. dog oh, on Twitter. Just not Cody, you is the point of view. Cody why was an you, adorable— Why do you do this, John Avalon? Why Cody was an adorable dog. Cody, Cody Hugo Rascal Enton. I also called him Whitey, Chewbacca, Chewy. Uh, I love that dog. No wonder why he passed. He was schizophrenic. He had no idea what his name was. (laughs) 
I gave him most of those nicknames when he was already deaf. The, the PSA um, being, look I for can't. the dog, not Harry's face. I just would avo- I would just advise just avoid it. Just go watch <laughs> Netflix. I like I'm kidding. Them. Thanks all. Okie dokie. Special thanks to our team behind the scenes, who is going to quit us now. Amy Eason, Lauren Moore, Raj Makija, and David Toledo. We'll see you next time on The Forecast Fest. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.